0: Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week, we conclude our discussion of one of America's celebrated contemporary Chicano writers, Jimmy Santiago Baca, by highlighting a social issue uh, near and dear to his heart, but not just his, ours as well. That's the plight of displaced people, or in many cases, asylum seekers.
0: As we discussed in the last episode, you know, Vanka is most famous for his contributions to the genre of prison literature. And that's obvious because he was behind bars, often in solitary confinement, uh, when he taught himself how to read. Beyond just learning the mechanics of being able to put words together by reading authors from across time and space, He intuitively looked inside himself to form a worldview and one that would ultimately inform a large body of work directly addressing political, psychological, and social issues. Last episode, we accompanied Baca as he took us as readers behind the walls of one of the world's most secretive places, a prison. And there he challenges us to look at the experiences of incarceration differently. He puts us in existential double binds where we're in places where no choices are good ones. And he asks us to re-envision our understanding of what it means to be behind bars. And perhaps more importantly, what happens to men and women because of their time behind them.
1: Last episode, we read three of his poems written during those prison years. In this episode, we will look at Baca not as a prison writer, but as a contemporary Chicano writer and social activist outside the context of his prison literature. Uh, we will look at one of his most current pieces, the epic poem. When I walk through that door, I am. Uh, Christy, an epic poem, as I understand it, is a lengthy narrative poem about the um, extraordinary deeds of an extraordinary character. I mean, this poem uh, really isn't that lengthy. But the extraordinary character is not a traditional hero. I mean, uh, this is the narrative of an undocumented immigrant arriving at the southern border of the United States. It's not a memoir, but a testimonio, which is a distinctively Hispanic style of writing. Uh, But that features elements of truth, if not necessarily journalistically accurate. I mean, is that a correct assumption? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it is, and that's a good way to say that. I mean, it's a narrative epic. We think of, you know, the Odyssey and Homer writing that, and in this case, it's it's a takeoff of that, uh, but it's really the perfect genre for expressing the ideas Baca is most passionate about in this piece of writing. You know, Baca's experiences both as a Chicano poet, but even really as an ex-con, give him a unique vantage point at looking into the experiences of some of the asylum seekers coming across the southern border for the obvious reason, one, that he speaks Spanish and so he can culturally identify in that way. Uh, But he's also been behind bars, just like the hero in our epic. And he's referencing a place that is often very secretive in some of these Uh, Places that he's talking about. The rage that he expresses, and we can read it, we can feel his anger, it's very personal. He understands the experience of being violated secretly. Remember, Baca's first published work is titled Immigrants in Our Own Land, and in that poem he's referencing being a Chicano, but he's also referencing being a, a, a convict. But before we open up the text, I do think it's important that we define some of the terms uh, that will understand, well, that will inform our understanding of this work. Then when we go through the poem, we do need to highlight some of the more specific details that are actually features of Chicano literature. And if you read some more Chicano literature, which I hope you do, you'll notice these things in those pieces as well. So, Gary, first and foremost, give us some background on this problem of displaced people. In fact, what is a displaced person, and why do we even have this problem?
1: Sure. Uh, Let me point out that my statistics are coming from the United Nations Refugee Agency, and they're current as of July 2023. And. These numbers obviously change more frequently than than we would like or even know, uh, but unfortunately, usually not in the directions we would like them to. Uh, The problem is vast, and it is growing, but it is fundamentally a problem as old as the Earth itself. This is not a unique American problem, although that is Baca's context in New Mexico. Uh, This is not a 21st century problem, although Baca is writing in the 21st century. Um, A displaced person is a person who's been forced to flee from his or her home. Um, It can be because of persecution, conflict, uh, natural disaster, human rights abuses. I mean, if you think even back to the biblical text, Moses and Jesus were both displaced people as a result of genocides. And uh, world history in many ways is a collection of stories about this particular problem. Um, But let's just look at some examples in the last century. During World War II, 60 million people were displaced in Europe, 12 million just from Germany alone, 3 million were displaced in Vietnam during that conflict, the Iraq War has displaced 4 million people. More recently, and we referenced this briefly in our episode on Myanmar, unrest there has displaced uh, almost half a million people. Uh, 12 million have been displaced from the smaller country of Syria since 2011, which is, you know, half of the entire country's population. Right now in Ukraine, over uh, one quarter of that country's total population has been displaced. I mean, I could go on. Uh, We could discuss the situation in the Congo and Somalia and South Sudan. Currently, uh, there are over 108 million people that have been forcibly displaced from their homes. Um, Now, not all of these will leave their country. I mean, if you can help it, that's not ideal for obvious reasons. But when you leave your country, you lose your documentation, your educational credentials, your professional status, your language, your culture, everything that you ever knew or that ever defined you is immediately stripped away. Um, It's estimated that each year over one million people seek asylum in a country that is not their home country. And some will ultimately receive papers and, and become refugees with proper legal status, but that is not the first step. And this that's not a guarantee that all displaced people will be granted refugee status. In fact, we know that, that they will not. Uh, some may even become people with no citizenship of any kind anywhere. So this is a massive worldwide problem.
0: You know, and it's one thing that I really didn't understand, or at least had really not thought about in a serious way. I never understood you know, that anybody could be displaced. Anna, um, my daughter who lives in Knoxville, she's worked as a case manager with refugees, uh, and she brought that to my attention. And one day she just said, "'Mom, anyone really could be a refugee. "'Nobody's really safe.'" I never really thought about it like that, uh, but it's true. Uh, for example, recently in our area, the city of Germantown had a situation where um, gallons of diesel fuel was dumped into the water supply, and immediately that uh, community was displaced. I mean, you cannot live without water. Uh, they couldn't wash their, their dishes, they couldn't drink, they couldn't shower. But in that case, or in our case, it was a small problem because it only lasted 10 days and people left. They had to leave, but they came back. I mean, we have friends in Germantown and they needed a place to go. Uh, But what if the water had never been fixed? And what if they could never have gone home? I mean, what if Germantown was in a state of war and and the people were trapped? You know, these were people that Anna met from all over the world and was supporting from... uh, in Knoxville because they had come here seeking asylum. Uh, The U.S. has oceans on either side of our country, and we haven't fought a war here in America since the Civil War. So we don't think about the reality or the possibility of being displaced. uh, And that's fortunate for those of us that live in this continent. But really, it can happen anywhere. And it does happen everywhere.
1: True. And so the question is what to do to help resettle people or perhaps even uh, return to their homes. I mean, it's a crisis all over the world, like we discussed. And in the United States, currently on average, there are 73,000 refugees that are resettled across our country every year from all parts of the world. And that is a large number for sure. But as anyone can see who turns on a TV, the problem is it larger than that.
0: Right, and this is the problem on Baca's heart as he sets out to write this piece. What is the plight for this average woman who, for no fault of her own, is put in the most vulnerable situation a human could ever be in? She is without familiar physical space, without community, without money, without support, without understanding of culture, without language. She has nothing and must leave. People do not leave their country and move unless things are absolutely treacherous. And that treachery is the context of Baca's story. Let's read the opening words of his poem, and we'll see this context.
1: In San Salvador, Tilnal, my marido, works night shifts knitting clothing for export. Gangs tax the workers half their check, but Tilnal refuses to pay. And we have a four-year-old, Joaquin, but they don't care. On Tonal's way home last night, four thirty in bed, when I hear angry voices outside. "You pay or die!" Wheels screech, door slams. Tonal's voice begs for mercy. Then shots. Boom, boom. The car squeals off, leaving Tonal's jagged voice. "Sophia, are you to me? Are you to me? Are you to me, Sophia?" I rush from the bedroom, draw my yarn blanket and slippers on, llama and sheep wool Tonal made for me for our fifth anniversary. I dash into the night, across the street, collapse next to Tonal kneeling under the street light in the neighbor's stone dirt driveway. I cradle Tonal's body on my lap. Mia more, Mia More I weep, as blood pools in the dirt, I tug his arm. Mia more, Mia More, no Temurice. Corre norte mi reina, con via mi amor, corre o te matan. I scream, stay awake, stay awake. Blood surfs from his thighs, ladles out from kneecaps that look like potato peelings on the cutting board. The stones and dirt witness, the stones ask, the stones take, the stones tell. Lay on us, they whisper, we will absorb your sadness. Tonal died, me and my baby Joaquin go north, Pal Norte as he wanted, to escape the wrath of the gangs.
0: And so Baca introduces the context of, of the poem. Remember, context is more than just the place and time. It includes the place and time, but it's more than that. Uh, this is a contemporary story. It's situated in El Salvador's, El Salvador's capital, San Salvador. But as with all stories, the more sensitive you are to the context of the story, the more able you are to understand the behavior of the characters and the significance of what they do. Baca's purpose in writing this story is to situate the conditions of displaced people as they arrive in the United States through the southern border. And so to do that, he starts his story not on the southern border, but in San Salvador. Gary, tell us a little bit about this relatively small country in Central America.
1: Um, Sure. Uh, El Salvador is uh, bordered by Guatemala and Honduras, and it has a little under uh, 7 million people, so it is a small country. Uh, If you were to look at the asylum seekers along the southern border that have been apprehended you would see that a significant number of them come from Guatemala, Honduras, but most notably El Salvador. And there's a reason for that. If you just look at the numbers from 2022, which is what I have, you'll see that 97,000 immigrants came from this little country, and that number was even higher in 2021 El Salvador has been, uh, for many years, overrun by gang violence to the point that, as recently as this week, uh, the current president um, has been in the news because he is controversially uh, implementing mass trials for gang members, uh, specifically Barrio 18 and MS-13. Um, The violence in El Salvador has gotten so bad that he has detained 71,976 young men for being gang members and jamming them into prison. That is 1% of the total population of the country. You know, in some cases, um, they try as many as 500 at a time. And if convicted, the penalty can be anywhere from 45 to 60 years in prison. You know, and of course, this sounds awful, and it is awful, there is no doubt. Uh, but the president's popularity in a country is on the rise because of the things Baca talks about in the opening section of the poem. In the U.S., Gangs uh, make money mostly by selling drugs. In Central America, gangs make money mostly by extortion. Uh, You have to pay the rent to get security. And if you don't, uh, what happened to Tonal will likely happen to you.
0: You know, you, you throw those numbers out. They just sound incredibly large. I mean, why would that? You wouldn't even think that that many young men would want to participate in something that awful.
1: Well, it's for the exact same reasons young men would do it in any city. Uh, They need identity, and many of them can't read or write. They're poor with no vision of how to get out of their situation, and so the cycle grows. And uh, if you don't want to participate, what other choice do you have? I mean, in many cases, the choice is what we see this young girl doing. She walks to America, a land where she's heard there is at least a chance for a future.
0: So people get into impossible situations. I'm either going to be in the gang or I'm going to fight the gang or I'm going to run. You know, I want to point out that if you're looking at this text on the page, and and this is getting back to the literary side, uh, Baca uses so many poetic strategies that you can't hear when we just read it out loud. I mean, he isolates important words like leaving and boom, boom. He puts them all alone on the line by themselves Uh, He used all caps for that that phrase that you read. You read it louder, but he wrote it in all caps. You pay or die. He uses a lot of dashes and ellipses. I mean, these verses are very short, but they carry a lot of power, sometimes because they're short. The words are carefully chosen for meaning and tone, and in this case, the tone is pain. It's panic.
1: Well, and he also uses a lot of Spanish language, uh, and I hope I'll be forgiven for my <laughs> my massacre of Spanish when I read that. Uh, but the, you know, using the Spanish language really stood out to me.
0: Yes, and this is that's one of the things that's a characteristic of Chicano poetry in general. Chicana, Chicano poetry, or the Chicana, Chicano people in general you know, they're a heterogeneous people. I mean, what's that mean? You know, there's many different ways that they use Spanish, and, and they speak Spanish, both in the way they speak and the way that they write. Uh, for some Chicana, Chicano poets, English is their first language. They've learned Spanish. Uh, it's their parents' language. They, they speak it, but not well. Uh, For others, it's the reverse. They speak it really well because it's their first language and they've learned English as a second language. Uh, For writers like Baca, uh, they don't just speak English and Spanish, but they have indigenous languages that come out uh, because that's in their background from time to time. Uh, Baca, like many other Chicana and Chicano poets, switch very naturally from one language to another, and the way that they would speak in their everyday lives, but also in their poetry, because this is very natural. It's the way they talk. It's the way they communicate. It, it's a mode of expression in general conversation. Sophia, Sophia, ayudame, ayudame, Sophia. This means help me, help me. The conjugation is in the verb, it's in the imperative sense tense in the Spanish, which is stronger, it's clearer than the way that we would say it in an English translation. There's a lot more passion the way that it's spoken there.
1: Well, I'd like to throw in a psychological nerd observation on okay. this before we move forward. It's one of the things you and I have talked about many times that uh, that I like to discuss about language in when, in my psychology courses and stuff like that. You have a different personality in each different language. So imagine writing poetry from two different personalities, which is what he's doing. And so anyway, would you say that Bacchus switches to Spanish for the more emotional words?
0: Yeah, uh, I would say that's true, especially in, in cases like this. I mean, look how much passion is going through here. Ayudemi, me, Sophia. This is his love language, like you were saying. It's very intimate. Mi amor, mi amor, no te mueres. Don't die, my love. I mean, that's a great example. Then you see, corre pal norte, mi reina, comejito. You know, these are very, very emboldened phrases and passion-based uh, and phrases. Vete, mi amor, corre, o te They were gonna gonna kill you. Uh, there's urgency there. I would argue, uh, also though, it's not just that they're emotional, but These phrases carry kind of a lyrical quality, maybe a rhythm, a mood in Spanish that isn't the same as in English.
1: Well, you know, obviously, uh, Baca and other Chicano poets uh, know that some of their readers won't understand what they're saying when they use Spanish.
0: Did you find yourself struggling with that when you were reading it? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think obviously they know that. You know, they want their readership to be larger than people that are bilingual, uh, in a way, maybe that's limiting or a barrier. But I think uh, in a very real sense, it's an important point to be making when you do it. You know, that limitation of not being fully understood or not expressing everything fully has always been the burden of uh, the Spanish people, the Spanish speaking people for generations. And now they're they're push, putting that burden on the English speaking reader. It's an expression perhaps a more important reason to do that, though, even more than communicating, the, you know, the challenges of the bilingual nature or the passion. is just the pride of being able to do that, you know, fluently fuse two languages to make art. I mean, that is a gift. You see this fusion of Indo-Hispanic culture. Uh, you can see it in the language and the English context is rich, uh, it's a, it's a, an experience to express like this, and it's something to be proud of. You know, bilingual poetry functions in many ways as a symbolic expression of this cultural fusion, which, you know, no doubt is just very cool. You know, we can't read the entire poem, uh, obviously, uh, in this podcast, but I do want us to read a little bit more of this beginning section so we can point out some of these other distinctives and make some observations of things that if you were to read, and I hope you do read the full length piece, you'll see this in, in the entirety of the poem.
1: At every port and border, we encounter vigilantes, uniformed official administrators and unruly mobs shouting the same refrain. Go back to your country and from American language radios at the Mercado and from windows, talk show celebrities, labelists, rebellious outlaws, criminals and drug dealers. Answering our misery with four-walled thinking, walls I vowed to smash down one day, and aloof and solitary woman with mountain cliff fire burning burning in me. The experts claim not to know our oppression, how we are tortured and murdered and turned away at every door instead of the real people that we are. Hungry, kind, hardworking, dreaming of an education and peaceful life. Their ideas replace us with stereotypes that suit their selfish needs. We did nothing wrong. The shooting has taken the center out of me, leaves cartridges of shotgun shells where my heart used to be, in the center of me smoldering, how Tunal was on his way home from work, paper lunch sack clutched in hand. "'San Martin de Porus medal around his neck, "'a turquoise-silver wedding band, "'his T.O. Thomas, a Hueco silversmith made for us, "'a heart tattoo with our names on it, on his chest, "'and Joaquin Sempre mi amor on his left forearm. "'I pack what I can carry and flee Pal Norte. "'I believe my husband's words, believe them with my whole heart. "'Joaquin strapped to my back. Four times jump trains as they are moving.' Four times, gang raped by predators and the police. And as each man mounts me, a voice in me speaks, will you tell them hell is not a dream and that you've been there? Will you tell them? And I whisper, I will. In El Paso, Texas, I plead for asylum. They bust me to the Otero County Processing Center, Immigration Detention Center in Otero County, New Mexico, and ICE authorities take my baby Joaquin and I am placed in a cell. And two ice officials raped me that night, their glossy badges and pistols and leather belts shimmering under the fluorescent ceiling lights. Their sweat and tongue flickering spit sprinkles my cheeks and forehead, veins pulse on their necks, reddened faces swollen and eyes glazed, angry sparkle with madness. The Cibola County Correctional Center, run by Core Civic in Otero County, is a machine that turns its cruel amusement wheels, manufacturing, 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 packaged lies that I am a worthless villain. I want to be me, who I am inside myself, back to myself, blessed with awareness, vulnerable, gentle with myself and others, hope that one day I might be able to live again. I am raped by an ICE officer again. He grunts and squeals like a pink pig, and the stones and dirt witness. The stones ask. The stones take. The stones tell. Lay on us. We will absorb your sadness.
0: You know, that's an expression you're going to see him repeat over and over again. We've already heard it twice. Uh, the stones and dirt witness. The stones ask. The stones take. The stones tell. Tell, lay on us, we will absorb your sadness. As a genre, Chicano poetry is rooted in the land. They use the expression la tierra, on the, the earth or the land. When you use your, lose your place in the world, your lands, you lose your roots. Our sense of place, you know, that gives us our personal orientation towards ourselves. And in the context of the Chicano people at large, Baca in particular, there's this indigenous understanding of the world that's embedded into the, this relationship between the people and the land that they live on. Pueblo Indians, you know, that's one example, but other indigenous people do this too. Consider the earth as a mother, La Sagrada Tierra. Astlan, you may have heard that name. It's a the, the pre-Columbian word for the Mexican civilization that was in this space uh, before America existed, has taken on this mythological significance over the years. And and we see this right here in this expression about the stones, the stones and dirt witness. They cry out and they seek to take away some of Sophia's sadness. So we see that. But another thing that we saw, and you, you had to notice this because it's so graphic and, and awful, is how many times Sophia is raped. I mean, she's raped by gang members. And, and we know that this is a common occurrence for displaced people crossing the jungles and jumping on trains, trying to get to the northern border. And, and we know that. And that's shocking. And that's awful. But he shocks us again, because when she arrives at the United States border, she's expecting to find safety. She's expecting to find refuge but what are the first things that he has happened to his character she's her child is taken away from her put in a cage and she's raped again but this time by immigration officers i mean this is awful and when i read it i thought is that inflated so i wanted to ask a question gary i thought that was something we should talk about is this something that actually happens at the border
1: Well, you know, I I do want to be careful here. Uh, The short answer is yes. I mean, there are credible allegations of rogue agents doing awful things, and uh, I would not argue that that's the majority. But unfortunately, it has happened. Uh, What I will say, and I think this is the larger and more important point, Women who are displaced, especially when they have children, are absolutely the most vulnerable. And when that is the case, the predators descend in large numbers and uh, they surface disguised as many things. I mean, they could be agents of the government or police or supposed friends or sympathetic countrymen, clergymen, Anybody. So, this is an incredibly large problem. Um, And there is an argument that at minimum uh, one third of the women in these centers have been assaulted, and even that number is likely low. And what Baca is doing here, really, and I want to point this out from my limited knowledge of literature, okay, from a historical perspective, he's, he's doing what I call the Harriet Beecher Stowe thing. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, She and the Beecher family were prominent abolitionists, and young Harriet grew up at the dinner table every night hearing stories told by prominent abolitionists. And what she did over time, collected all of those stories and put them into one book. Um, and uh, so these things all happened not actually to one person, but they were a collection of things that actually did happen. And they got compiled into a single story as concisely as they could so that they would have maximum impact.
0: Well, there is a term for that, by the way, uh, in Latino po- uh, poetry. It's called testimonio. And I know you used that word before. Testimonial truth in poetry doesn't actually mean a factual retelling of something exactly as it was reported, like you would have to do in a trial transcript. And this type of writing, what's important is the representation of a greater truth. So in this case, you know, Baca tells us, this is a fictional story. There is no such person as Sophia. But the greater truth of what is happening to to, to displace women, more than just one woman, this is absolutely true, and this is actually things that are happening right now, and that's what's angering Baca, because instead of being agents of salvation, there are people who look at these vulnerable, downtrodden men and women, not just women, men and women, and look at them as criminals or as prey, Uh, And participate in the victimization or just allow evil to truly seep. And sometimes this is disguised in the name of safety or even in the name of compassion. In the case of this story, you're going to notice Sophia's son, Joaquin, is sold off to child traffickers with another problem that we know that exists. I mean, no one can read this and not be filled with anger and rage. You have to feel it. Baca does not relieve our anger anywhere during the entire first section of the poem. In fact, he heightens it as uh, Sophia goes from this reality, this awful reality, into this dream world where she speaks to her dead husband about the choices, the impossible choices that have brought her to this nightmare.
1: You know, there's a lot of international. There's a lot of interaction with the natural world in this poem.
0: Well, there is, and and it's a nice thing to notice, you know, not just stones and dirt. There are other things. Let's read a part where you see her interacting uh, with some of the natural environment there uh, at the border.
1: At the prison fence this morning, I stand and feed a roadrunner, the only desert bird who taunts the rattler, luring it forth, expands its umbrella wings, idling inches from uh, when the snake whip lunges at it, and the roadrunner fakes and skips back from the venomous fangs, hops clear until it snatches the snake up with its beak and smashes its head against the stone and swallows it whole. Sleek gray shield of feathers, black spots and white edgings, swoops in a single blink of an eye on brick walls, over bushes, across the patrol path, fast and agile as a supersized hummingbird. I toss cooking pot scraps and dinner greens given me by the kitchen help on the grass. He eats tame as any yard dog. I pray for the roadrunner to check on my four-year-old Joaquin, now classified a criminal by the United States Guard and him against the snakes. I tell the Stones, he was a preschool child once, racketing hallways, clacking his skates in his cubby, hanging his rain slicker on wooden pegs, and stamping in rain puddles with his galoshes.
0: So you see there's a lot of symbolism there. There's a lot of identification there. There's some... A lot of beautiful imagery there. You can also see that the plot is breaking up. Not It's more than a straightforward chronological arrangement of events. We're, there's flashbacks. Baca will take us back into Sophia's memory of her relationship with her husband, the early years of her son, things that happened before their displacement. The longer, and as we read it, the longer Sophia is held within the camp, the greater her despair becomes. And all she has is memory and fear that she expresses through these monologues.
1: Uh, to now, my despair is the sawtooth chain that cuts through bone. It growl roars through my heart, scattering bone dust. And what was once anger is reduced to a stump, cut down into sizes that fit my heart's black iron stove. I kneel on the floor in front of my heart, shove my despair in, watch the flames engulf it, The fire flows in blind reverence, allowing no exit nor escape from my despair as its reckoning turns to ash. And when the fires of despair burn down and darkness fills me, I no longer know how to find my way out under the moon and stars. My child cries for me to take his hand and lead him out of the dark house for me to say, It's okay, the terror will go and things will get better.
0: The metaphors in that section are very easy to comprehend. They're very vivid. The sawtooth chain cutting through the bone. Anger being compared to a tree. A heart bursting in flames. This is Baca at his best. Really expressing emotions he himself has felt in other contexts, but felt them to their fullness. The part you just read is really one of the turning points in the poem. From this point on, we see Sophia, and I'm going to use Bacchus term here, chopping up her anger, beating it to the fire. And at this point forward, she begins to move. I feel like I am walking up a mountain meditation. On you, my sweet Joaquin, where are you? Are you safe? Do you have nightmares? Do you cry at night? Are you eating? Are you seeking? From here onward, you know, she's no longer speaking to Tonal, but she is speaking to Joaquin. She's moving. She's walking, 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 walking. For the rest of the poem, Joaquin finding her son is her goal. Toward the end of part one, Sophia speaks in the second person. Now that means she's speaking to us, the reader. And of course, this is the standout quote from the whole book. I am an immigrant mother on a quest for freedom. There is no retreat.
1: You know, in in some ways, uh, the United States or really the world can appear divided on how to approach the crisis of displaced people. Um, But I would argue that it's likely not because we're divided in our common goal of helping the helpless and seeking to destroy evil. Uh, But we're divided because solving a problem is more complicated than just opening or shutting a border. I mean, You know, 17,000 pounds of fentanyl was seized last year on the border, but also 1,200 immigrants were killed. You know, even more died trying to reach a place of safety. I mean, there's our existential double bind again. Both are bad outcomes. Um, You know, are there criminals infiltrating borders across the globe uh, seeking to wreak havoc and exploit? Of course, everywhere in the entire world. I mean, are there displaced people at borders across the globe, uh, you know, finding themselves to be the most vulnerable humans on the planet? Yes, that is also true. So, What should we do? Um, Is there something the average person can do?
0: And Baca has thought about this question many times over, and not just in regard to the problem of border safety and displaced people. Part three of this book changes voices from a narrative poem to a personal essay written by Baca uniquely in his own voice about his own personal experience. In fact, the experience that he narrates in this third part are what inspired the poem to begin with, inspired the first two sections. Baca reveals his own struggle as a resident of New Mexico, as a citizen of a border state. He sees firsthand what's happening to thousands of displaced people every day. He reveals his desire to do something. But what? What could he do? So in his case, he decided to get involved in a positive way. He offered a job to a refugee. The refugee's name was saypo saypo was from Myanmar, and he, and his wife, their two sons, had been displaced because vigilantes had gone door-to-door hunting down Christians for the purpose of setting them on fire and killing them. saypo escaped with his family, but he had to survive for 15 years in a refugee camp before somehow making it to America. saypo worked for Baca on his farm and even lived in a trailer on Baca's property for a while. Say, Poe spoke no English, but over the course, and this is, of course, what Baca says in in his essay, over the course of time, through nods and smiles, you know, Baca considered him to be a friend. One day, Baca went to pick up Poe from his apartment, and Poe and his family uh, were gone. The neighbors told Baca that they had been picked up in the middle of the night and carted away in handcuffs. Baca never found Poe, but that's when he started writing the narrative poem about Sophia. Uh, Years ago, before this all happened in 2007, an interviewer from Oakland, California, was interviewing Baca. And he asked Baca about despair. And and Baca wasn't talking about immigrants, but this is his worldview and what's informed his position on a lot of things. He was talking about Chicano The specific question was about Chicano teenagers living in urban areas. Uh, And Baca expresses his philosophy on how he overcomes despair when thinking about these large problems that seem hopeless. And it's great advice, what he says, and something I think that we can think about as we think about this very contemporary and challenging topic. Gary, let's read this together. If you read the part of the interviewer, I'll read Baca's response.
1: I see a lot of despair in the world, especially among young Latinos living in Oakland. There just doesn't seem to be much hope in the world today. How do you see your role as a Chicano writer living in this world?
0: I think if we can step out of the roles dictated by institutions that go against what we know in our hearts, then maybe we can move beyond the state of despair that surrounds us. But if we keep focusing on institutions for the cure, despair sets in. So we have to act spontaneously out of our own sense of decency to do what we can. Many people have forgotten that they're empowered, that they can do stuff. They just assume they can't. And when they realize that they can do it for that one person, the despair leaves. For me, it left. And it's really, really hard to keep your dignity when you're constantly subjecting your dignity to destruction, when you're constantly facing the enemy and taking the shots. Then you realize that you can do something and your dignity is restored. I don't know how to answer that question, except to say that if I got off a bus in Oakland, I would tell those kids, why can't we put windows on that old lady's house? I mean, I know you're going that way, and you're going that way, and you're going that way, and I live over there, and you live over there, but why can't we all just meet tomorrow, pull 26 bucks together, and put the window in? We could do it. It's not going to cure a lot of stuff. But the lady will have a window. So for Baca, it's about the power of the individual to make a change. It's what he writes about, but it's also the way he's chosen to live his life. Let's finish this episode reading the last two paragraphs of this book. It's a memory of Seipo. I remembered how Sapo loved the rain, how he missed his country Burma with such huge sadness, and that when he mentioned it, the word imbued his features with a veil of excruciating loneliness. I remember how careful he was to eat every morsel of rice, every meal he cleaned his plate of every rice grain and bean with a piece of tortilla, and then he washed his plate. He was always courteous and grateful. The pine tree enchanted him. The boulders were his friends. He would caress them with his fingers and say, Ooh! as if the rock had consciousness and was aware of the caresses. He wore sandals, but never wore them in the cabin. He liked green fields and grass and the creek water flowing over the creek stones, and he loved the sunlight and the sun and basked in hard work. He mired himself in silence, almost never talking. And I guess if this poem is anything, it is a tribute to him, and thousands like him, who I owe so much to for teaching me how to be a better man and appreciate what I have, mostly my family, and he gave me the courage to do something, what I could do, although it is never enough. I no longer write my hands and wring my hands and worry. I act, I engage, and I write
1: and with that, we conclude our discussion of the life and inspirational work of Jimmy Santiago Baca. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of one of America's great Chicano poets. If you have, please honor us by sharing this episode with a friend via text or email or social media, or just playing it for them. Uh, Don't forget, if you can give us a five star rating on your podcast app or write us a positive review, Um, connect with us through our social media or webpage. Uh, And if you're a teacher, download a listening guide to help your students focus as they listen to academic discussion. Most of all, Thank you for being with us and honoring us with your attention.
0: Peace out.